Well, this evening we are going to be exploring um, Psalm 92, uh, a song for the Sabbath. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up there with me. If you're using a pew Bible, I think this is on page 498 in your pew Bible, 498. And hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 92. As always, I'll be reading out of the ESV. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. The works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They, bear, they flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and grain to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a few years ago, there was a, uh, a poll conducted by the National Alliance for Youth Sports uh, that found nearly 70% of kids uh, who are at one time or another involved in sports in their childhood end up quitting that said sport by the age of 13. Why is that? Well, the reason that this study gave was because they no longer very simply, found the sport enjoyable anymore. You see, as the stakes were raised and college scholarships, for example, came on the line, there was a seriousness that began to attend those sports, which for some completely squeezed out the joy of participating in them any longer. You see, what was, what was at one time or another such a delight for so many kids over time slowly turned into a chore. And many kids just didn't care to make that kind of investment in them, in something that for them was evacuated of all kinds of joy. But beyond youth sports, I'm sure many of us could also account for similar experiences in our own lives, uh, where, where something that at one point or another that was such a joy to attend to uh, slowly begins to become a chore that we just have to begrudgingly endure or just give up on altogether. I remember that when my, my family moved three and a half years ago now from, uh, from Florida, the swamp that is Florida, uh, to Nebraska, I had so many dreams for how I would make my yard the most beautiful yard in the neighborhood. Living in Florida in that swamp, I didn't really ever have the opportunity to do that for a number of reasons. Um, but, but, but when I moved to Nebraska, that was the goal. That was the hope. I was going to delight in my yard. I was going to cultivate my yard. And I set out with that goal in mind. But as you know, a few months probably passed. And then it became a chore, an absolute chore to endure. 
Again, I'm sure we could all recount experiences in our lives, but, but what happens, what happens when that also begins to be the case with worship too? What happens when worship begins to become a drudgery to endure rather than the joyous covenant renewal ceremony that it's designed to be? Well, in those cases, we would do well to remind ourselves of what our psalmist reminds us of this evening, and that is it's good to worship the Lord. It's good to worship the Lord. And that's our big idea this evening. Very simply, it is good to worship the Lord. And so as we work through this psalm for the next few minutes, um, we're going to look at four arguments that our author provides, both explicitly and implicitly, for why it's good to worship the Lord. Arguments that should inject life back into our lukewarm hearts when we find that church and the worship of the Almighty God is turning into more of a chore than a delight. In short, it's good to worship the Lord because four reasons. Because worship is good, because the Lord is good, because there are sad outcomes for non-worshippers, and because flourishing comes to lifelong worshipers. So I guess you could call this a four-point sermon, uh, but don't be intimidated by that. I, I promise they will be shorter four points. So first, we worship the Lord, or it's good to worship the Lord because worship is good, because the Lord is good, because there's a sad outcome for non-worshippers, and because flourishing comes to lifelong worshippers. So let's start out with our first point. Uh, first, it's good to worship the Lord because worship is good. Um, it's good to worship the Lord because, because worship itself is an inherent kind of good. Notice that right at the outset, we hear the psalmist proclaim just that. He says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, most high. So clearly, worship is good. But in what specific ways is worship good? Well, Charles Spurgeon, I, I think, is really helpful here. Um, Spurgeon notes that worship is actually a threefold good. He mentions that worship is an ethical good, worship is an emotional good, and worship is a practical good. And so this is essentially what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, first, worship is an ethical good because the Lord deserves worship. Uh, he's the only being, the only one who deserves to, to have ultimate worth ascribed to his name, which is what we're doing in corporate worship. Um, if ethics is about doing what's right, there could be no greater right, if you will, than to come before the Lord and ascribe with all our hearts the worship due his name. There could be no greater good than placing all of our affections on a being who is perfect in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So worship is an ethical good. Worship is also an emotional good because we're engaged, when we're engaged in worship, the Lord is really doing something by his spirit on the human heart. He nourishes us by word and sacrament and prayer. And as he does that, the Holy Spirit begins to soften our hearts so that we would be more and more renewed and in love with the truths that we profess in the word of God. And then finally, Spurgeon notes that, that worship is a practical good. And by this, Spurgeon is actually getting at, at the good that our worship does for others, both inside and outside of the church. Maybe you think of something, I thought of something different when he wrote practical, but the way he spells this out is that our worship does great good for those other people in the church and even those outside the church. In other words, our worship bears witness to the goodness of God 
in the context of the world in which we live, and in doing so, it serves as an implicit invitation for others, including those who don't currently worship the Lord, to come and be part of the worshiping community and worship too. In that way, worship is infectious, I think, in drawing the nations to the Lord. Now, some have referred to this last point that Spurgeon raises as something called doxological evangelism. I know that's a big phrase, doxological evangelism. Well, doxological evangelism is this idea that when we're focused as a church on doing what the church is primarily designed to do, uh, church is primarily designed to worship the Lord, and doxology gets at this idea of giving praise to God, it gets at this idea of, of worshiping God, that worship also carries evangelistic power where people see that God is among us. They see the gathered saints worshiping the Lord, and it has effect, an effect in drawing strangers into the family of God. Understand that, that there are a number of things that we as a church could spend our time doing, and to be sure, there are various things that are good that we do, that we should do, that we should pursue with an explicit evangelistic focus. And that's one of the things that we're going to do this fall, Lord willing, in our children's ministry. But as we do those things, as we pursue those things, let's not forget that one of the primary, if not the primary vehicles that we have as a church for evangelism is very simply our worship. When we sing and declare the faithfulness of the Lord to each other, we're also doing that in the context of a watching world. So we learn from all of this that it's good to worship the Lord because worship itself is good and worship also does great good ethically emotionally, intellectually, practically, and evangelistically. So that's our first point. Second, we also learn that it's good to worship the Lord because the Lord is good. So often in the Psalms, whenever we're given a command to do something, given commands, right, to praise the Lord or to sing praises to the Lord or to give thanks to the Lord, well, so often when the Psalms give us those commands, you just have to look a few lines down before we're also given reasons for those commands. And in this psalm, we're actually given several explicit reasons to worship the Lord, many of which revolve around the person and work of the Lord. First, if you'll notice in, in verse 4, that after the first three verses call us to worship the Lord with our mouths, with the music of lute and harp, to the melody of lyre, our psalmist tells us, For you, because you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. And then in verse 5, we read, How great are your works, O Lord! Now, it's not entirely clear from the psalmist what these works that he's referring to are. Um, he may be thinking about uh, God's works in creation in general. Um, that's what uh, David has in mind when he uses the same phrase in Psalm 8. Or, or perhaps he has some specific event in mind outside of creation, maybe like the, uh, the great deliverance in the Exodus, for example. Now, that would all be speculation. We don't really know what work the psalmist has in mind, but whatever work he has in mind, he trusts that the Lord has demonstrated his work in the world. He knows that the Lord is, is one who sovereignly oversees and governs all things in the world. And he knows that in every work of the Lord that he engages in, that the Lord has the ultimate good in mind, his glory and our good. So we worship the Lord then because of the Lord's infallible works and because those works are good. But it's not just the works of the Lord that our psalmist highlights because he also highlights the character 
and attributes of God too. You know, look, let's look at the psalm and just look how many attributes of the Lord our psalmist mentions. In verse 5, he mentions that God's thoughts are very deep, which gets at this idea of God's omniscience, that is, God's all-knowingness. Uh, that's an attribute that teaches us that the Lord is infinite in his knowledge. His knowledge spans from eternity past to eternity future and everywhere in between. He, he has an eternal knowledge of, of now because at every point is now for God. And one of the implications of this is that God does, that nothing God ordains, that, that nothing God does, that nothing God judges, he does apart from his complete knowledge. Now, I like what systematic theologian Mark Jones says on this. Uh, he notes that while we often make judgments as human beings about others without the requisite knowledge of the situation or of the person, how many times do we all do that, right, in our sin? Well, such is not the case with the Lord. Jones writes, quote, God judges not simply because he knows all things, but because he lovingly knows all things and never makes unfair judgments. On that thing, our, our profession that God is love, you heard that God lovingly knows all things and ordains all things. Uh, this profession that God is love also comes out in our psalm. In, in verse 2, where we read about this steadfast love of the Lord. This is another attribute, the love of God, which refers to God's covenant commitment to his people. Um, the idea here is that God has bound himself to his church by way of covenant, and, and that he's relentless in his pursuit of his covenant people, even if they should turn aside from him and become a wayward bride for a time. So we learn that God is omniscient, God is love, and then in verse 15, I'll just give you one more. God is upright. The Lord is upright. Another way we could phrase that is God is just. In everything he does, wickedness is never let off the hook. In all his judgments, God is right. So friends, understand that in just about every area, any area of life, when we are convinced that something or someone is good for us, well, we're going to pursue it. Now, of course, we get that wrong sometimes. And in our sin, we sometimes confuse what is good and evil together. But if we think that something will be to our advantage, we will pursue it. And I recall one time um, in, in, uh, when I was working specifically in college ministry uh, that uh, uh, one of the constant talking points among the, the college career advancement kind of people was uh, on the importance of internships. They were telling students, rightly so I think, that, that pursuing an internship is really important for your future career. And so when the time came for students to apply for summer internships, the most ambitious students that I'd be discipling in college ministry, who were convinced that, that an internship was the gateway to a fruitful career in the future, they were the most relentless pursuers of an internship. Every summer plan was tentative until they find out, found out whether or not they got their internship. And if they got word that they received that internship, everything else was thrown aside for the sake of that internship. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, it's good to pursue the Lord in worship because he is our ultimate good. So do you believe that? Let me submit that if we're not willing, as the Apostle Paul puts it, to quote, count everything as lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, well, we either need to evaluate whether our beliefs about God align with what the Bible say about God as our ultimate good, or whether we've put far too much weight on other things that might be good, but are nothing 
in comparison with the goodness and perfections of the Lord. So the second reason why it's good to worship the Lord is very simply because the Lord is good. He's the ultimate good, both in his person and in his works. Third, this is more of a negative reason to worship the Lord, but third, we next learn that it's good to worship the Lord because there's a sad outcome that awaits non-worshippers. If you're looking in verses 6 or 7 and then in verse 9, we, we read about the destiny of non-worshippers. Now, of course, everyone is a worshiper. So when I say non-worshippers, what I, what I mean are those who worship anything other than the triune God. And our passage says here a couple things about these kind of people who don't worship the triune God. Uh, first, we hear the non-worshipper described as stupid and as a fool. Maybe not what you want to lead with in your next evangelistic conversation, uh, but this is the hard reality that the psalmist bluntly holds out for us. The one who doesn't worship the Lord is stupid and is a fool. Now this first word, I found this interesting, which is translated stupid in the ESV in verse 5. Um, it also means something like brutish or beast-like. Um, now this isn't somebody who was one commentator notes, has a low IQ, but it's somebody who rejects the wisdom of God. But, but one of the stories that this reminded me of when I heard uh, that this non-worshipper is described in sort of a beast-like fashion is the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, but, but one day, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, the book of Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, um, the, the king of Babylon, was walking around his palace. He was admiring his kingdom. And, and as he was taken aback by his own excellencies, <laughs> he said to himself, quote, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And if you may remember what happens at, at once, right as his pride and arrogance is revealed, well, he's judged by God, and he becomes beast-like for a time in his manner. He begins to eat grass like an ox, his hair grows as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails grow as long as bird's claws. This is a fitting illustration, I think, of what the non-worshipper is functionally doing when he or she, in arrogance and self-righteousness, fails to worship the Lord. It actually deserves our sympathy because they become, our author tells us, beast-like, like that of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is especially telling in light of what David tells us back in another psalm, back in Psalm 8. Um, in Psalm 8, we're told that humanity... You and me were created to be a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor. And all the beasts of the field in Psalm 8 are actually placed underneath our feet. I think what James Montgomery Boyce writes on this is spot on when, when he observes this connection with Psalm 8. And he notes that part of our calling according to Psalm 8 is, quote, to look up to God and become like God in whose image he was made. But, and Boyce continues, if he, mankind, will not look up, the only place he will be able to look is down, and he will begin to behave like an animal. Someone said, God made man a little bit lower than the angels, and he has been trying to get lower ever since. Understand, friends, that, that not to worship the Lord, to refuse to look up, as it were, and, and, and acknowledge the Lord in worship is essentially to assume a nature that runs against the grain of how we were created. We weren't created to be non-worshippers of the Lord. And in fact, there's a sense in which even, even the animals know that. We were created to look upward, and in doing so to reflect the dignity 
and worth with which we were created. But as we continue in our psalm, we also learn just one more brief thing about the non-worshipper. And that is, just as he or she lives a sad life that deserves our sympathy and deserves our prayers, so too he is also, he or she is also heading towards a sad destiny too. And just look at the passage, you can see that, that he or she might sprout like grass, but we know that grass doesn't get all that high. Just don't use my yard right now as an example of that. Um, grass is also, though, so easily scorched by the sun, it, it can't go too long without water before it begins to brown. And our author is using that example to show that this is the fate of the non-worshipper, who is doomed to destruction and death forever. But if this is the negative reason for why it's good to worship the Lord, because we don't want to walk the road of the non-worshipper, our study leaves off in Psalm 92, and our psalmist leaves off in Psalm 92 with a more positive reason for worshiping the Lord. And so forth and finally, we learn in our psalm that it's good to worship the Lord because real flourishing, real fruitfulness comes to lifelong worshipers. Notice that in contrast to the non-worshipper, who we read fades as quickly as the grass, the one who trusts in the Lord is described how in verse 12? was a palm tree and is a cedar in Lebanon. Now, in the climate of uh, climate and topography uh, of Israel, the palm tree would have been a tree, or I guess still is a tree, uh, that gives off dates, food, to nourish somebody who eats from it. It's a fruitful tree, the cedar. It's a nourishing tree. Um, sorry, that was the palm tree. It's a nourishing tree. And then the cedar is this, um, as one commentator called it, a stately tree, something that's designed to be used in, in big construction projects. And they were, in fact, used in the construction project uh, of the temple in the Bible. And we read, long, uh, read about that in, um, in, in the Old Testament. But our author raises those uh, illustrations to show us that this is, this is the flourishing of a lifelong worshiper. He or she is one who bears fruit like the palm tree, and one who grows upwards and develops a kind of spiritual maturity that isn't easily shaken, just like the cedar. But more than that, the lifelong worshiper is also, according to verse 13, one who is planted in the house of the Lord. There's a specific location in mind. Now keep in mind that, that the temple of the day uh, reflected much arboreal tree and flower kind of imagery uh, because it was designed to represent the first temple, namely the Garden of Eden. And so when our author talks about a tree being planted in the house of the Lord, and you know, maybe we think today a tree being planted right in the middle of a church, well, that's a sign of overgrowth and neglect, but that's not the image at all that's going on here. These two are, the images are very much at home together, and they reflect a context of worship and fellowship with God. But beyond the imagery, one of the very practical lessons our author is teaching us is that spiritual flourishing cannot happen by being at home in the world. Notice again in verse 13 that flourishing happens where? In the courts of God. That's where the tree is planted. It's not in the world that we flourish. It's, it's when we're close to God. And particularly when we're in the places where God dwells among his people. When we're in the church. Well, that's the primary context for flourishing. And so the practical lesson in all of this is not to neglect the places where Christ promises to meet with his church. Don't neglect worship. Don't neglect the spiritual nourishment that, that belongs to corporate worship. And don't neglect the tools that God has given to each of us to draw near to him with daily. 
And then finally, we read that the one who makes a habit of worshiping the Lord, the one who bears fruit as a worshiper of the Lord, the one who worships where the Lord would have us worship, is also the one who flourishes even to old age. I love the vision that our psalmist holds out here for us. He tells us that, that someone who may seem to the eye to have lost a step, somebody who, who may not be as vibrant as they once were in their youth, someone who may have trouble with physical activity that once came so easily, is nevertheless, spiritually speaking, full of sap and green. Spiritually, these are the ones who exude life and vibrancy, the life and vibrancy of a tree in its prime. And what are they doing as they flourish to old age? Well, such a person may be retired from their vocation on earth, but they haven't retired from declaring that the Lord is upright, that the Lord is their rock, and that there is no unrighteousness in him. Even in old age, their worship has not ceased. And one of the questions I, I think this raises is whether or not we similarly have a likewise vision for long-term flourishing, both to old age and in old age, such as we have envisioned in this psalm. See, on the one hand, by God's grace, the church has people and the church needs people who exhibit this kind of flourishing in old age to be a testimony to the next generation. Uh, one of the tensions that's often experienced in uh, American football, in the, the, the NFL, is when a team has a veteran quarterback um, who's now at the end of their career, a proven veteran quarterback at the end of their career, and the team decides to draft their replacement. Now, the goal in these situations is that the older, experienced veteran quarterback would step up and he would invest in the younger quarterback so that the transition in one or two years' time wouldn't be so dramatic. And some veteran quarterbacks over the years have embraced this vision because they know the reality, right? They know they're at the twilight of their career. But others with some pride and self-preservation refuse to do anything to help the younger quarterback who they see as a threat to their longevity. Now, of course, I don't imagine that many of our older members here at the church view the younger generation as a threat to your longevity. Um, I don't even know what that would look like. But if you're someone who's in the latter half of your pilgrimage, as best as you can tell, do you ever look at your life and discipleship with a kind of intentionality that seeks to invest in the younger generation? Now, this isn't explicit in our psalm, but I think it's a given that those in the church who flourish to old age are a great witness and a great testimony to a younger generation, just wondering how in the world they could flourish similarly in a hostile and idolatrous world. And on the other hand, for those of you who are younger in your discipleship, how are you preparing yourself now for a lifetime of flourishing in the church? Are you looking to the older generation and, and sitting under the wisdom of godly men and women have gone before you? Are you taking proper stock of the temporary and fleshly flourishing promised by the world and learning how to call it out for what it is? And are you excited about the prospect of enduring as a worshiper, even to old age? Friends, understand that it's good to worship the Lord because real lifelong flourishing comes to those who are committed to worship the Lord, even to old age. In conclusion then, worship the Lord. Continue to see worship as a priority that we just can't sacrifice. 
And I once had some dear friends um, a few years ago admit to me that for a time they decided to take a break from the church as if taking a sabbatical for the summer from corporate worship was somehow a spiritually healthy thing to do from time to time. But such a vision, such an idea is completely foreign to the Bible. Worship, we're told, is not a chore to endure. It's not something to suffer through. It's a calling and command by God to be embraced because it's to our good and to the glory of God that we would worship the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you remind us of the goodness of worship. We confess that sometimes we come into the assembly on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings and our hearts just aren't in it. We're just not feeling it. Lord, would you forgive us for those times when we see worship more as a burden than as a delight? And Father, would you help us by your spirit to grow in treating the worship of your holy name what it is, something to be embraced, something to be delighted in, something to take hold of each and every Sunday with all of our faculties. Lord, we thank you for all the many reasons you provide for why it's good to worship your name. And we pray that all of us would take those things more and more to heart. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.